you might do around here. Okay? So, 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll uh, go right in. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come before you once again in prayer, and we ask that you open our eyes to see marvelous things from your word. Uh, I pray for myself that as the preacher, I would be a diligent and faithful preacher, and that, I, that my words would be your words, um, and that the truth of your word and the gospel would uh, penetrate the hearts of those here who are listening. And we pray for those who are listening uh, outside this room, um, uh, you know, via live stream as well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The section of the Bible that we call Second Peter, or as my Bible has it printed, the second letter of Peter, is just that, a letter from the Apostle Peter, who is one of the original followers of Jesus Christ. By way of introduction to our passage today, uh, the second half of chapter 1, I want us actually to read uh, the first half of chapter 1. So 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, Supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Supplied to you. Now, we're going to keep reading the rest of chapter 1 all in one sweep so that we have a sense of what it is. Okay, so having written those things, Peter then writes and starts with a therefore. Verse 12, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I also will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, 
such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is the word of the Lord. So he starts with a therefore in verse 12. And when you see a therefore, you always want to know what it's there for. We already read a therefore in verse 10. Peter writes of all these wonderful things, all of these truths, and gives a strong exhortation. And therefore, his readers should be diligent to make sure that they truly believe in Jesus as Savior and follow him as Lord. And also because of them being diligent, getting to verse 12, Peter himself is therefore to remind them of these wonderful truths and the fact that we should live our lives in light of them. Now, for our purposes, I don't want to belabor all the points that Peter has made so far. I preached them to you last week. But I do want to review the most important thing, which is that Jesus is God, he is Savior, he is Christ, and he is Lord. It says all of that in the first couple of verses. Now, first, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is a real man from history, not a fairy tale. Jesus of Nazareth was the most important man who ever lived. No one disputes the importance of Jesus, no matter what you may think of whether he is truly God or whether he was resurrected on the third day, right? Or whether he performed all those miracles. Everyone agrees that Jesus of Nazareth, the man, is the most important man who ever lived. How could you not? The very years that we live by are numbered according to his birth. Everyone understands that Jesus was an important man. The question is, was he just a man? He was not. Jesus is also God. Okay, God is one being, one what, with three who's. One being and three persons. Eternal three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or what we call the Trinity. God created the universe and everything in it, including the pinnacle of creation on the sixth day, us, human beings. How can then a man who was born 2,000 plus years ago also be God? It's because the second person of the triune God, the Son of God, came to earth and he was sent by the first person, the Son of God, uh, the Father of God, to add to his God nature, a human nature. A human nature. He is eternally God with no beginning and with no end. And at the right point in history, he also became a man by the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit caused the young Virgin Mary to become pregnant and give birth to Jesus. So Jesus is fully God, but he's not merely God. He is also man, and he is also fully man. He's not less than a man. He is fully man, but he's also not merely man. He is also fully God, okay? 
Jesus is our God, and Peter also calls him our Savior. Now, a Savior is one who saves. So why do we need a Savior? Because we have all sinned, and we need saving from the just punishment for sin, which is eternal hell. God created human beings perfect and sinless, but the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, fell from grace and perfection when they willfully decided to disobey God. We called this last week their Declaration of Independence. God designed them never to die, but in that moment of rebellion, their perfect human nature became fallen and sinful, and they began to die and eventually would die. Every human being since then, including you, including me, have been fallen and sinful. And that is why we can't be perfectly good. Our sinful nature, which we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, causes us to sin. We cannot not sin. And we all have sinned. And as I said, the punishment for sin is death and everlasting hell. And because we sin, death and hell are what we deserve because God is holy and we are not. This is what we need saving from. That is why we need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And how does Jesus the Savior save us? Well, the bad news is that the proper consequence for our sin is death and hell. The good news is that we can be forgiven by God and spared this punishment. Okay? Jesus, the God-man, lived a sinless life that we could not ever live. He died on the cross to take our punishment. Jesus dying on the cross paid the penalty for our sin. God sees Jesus' death on the cross okay, and says that punishment counts. The debt is paid. Jesus paid it all so that I don't have to punish the actual sinners. God also looks at Jesus' righteousness because he lived a sinless life. And he says, I am going to count Jesus' righteousness and put it on the sinner and count it as righteousness to Tony and to everyone else who believes in him. Okay? Whatever Jesus achieved with his holiness, I'm going to count that as the holiness for the sinner. It is not by our righteousness. We should never, ever be self-righteous. It is not by our righteousness that we can get to heaven. We cannot get to heaven by being good. Our going to heaven is because Jesus is good. And on top of that, God saves us for free. Okay? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is everlasting life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All we have to do is believe, trust, have faith in Jesus. God saves us because of our faith and not because of anything we do. We cannot earn our salvation. Salvation is by faith, by the grace of God. And we call this good news the gospel. So if you are sitting there and you have heard this good news, you can believe the good news and be saved by the good news. So I invite you to Believe in the good news that Jesus died for your sins. In fact, I don't just invite you. I beg you to believe. Your eternal soul depends on it. Your eternal soul depends on it. So when Peter writes, therefore, he is saying, therefore, as a result of being saved by 
faith in Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, as a result of being saved by Christ's righteousness and not ours. Therefore, as a result of knowing God and Jesus. Therefore, as a result of God, God granting us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Therefore, as a result of God granting to us precious and magnificent promises. Therefore, as a result of being set free from the slavery to sin. Therefore, because moral and physical diligence leads to fruitfulness. Therefore, because God has chosen and called you. Therefore, because at the end of all things, we will be gifted and abundant riches, uh, gifted with abundant riches in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, because all of these things are so important and wonderful, Peter is always ready to remind his readers of all these things. Now note that he writes, even though you already know them. Even though you already know them. He isn't just teaching them these eternal truths one time. He is going to go over these truths again and again and again. Why? Because... Repetition is a good teaching tool. This is how John MacArthur, who has pastored Grace Community Church here in L.A. for decades, has put it. He writes this. The godly shepherd stimulates his flock primarily by way of reminder. He consistently and tirelessly keeps teaching and reviewing all the major themes, doctrines, and commands of Scripture. No matter how much divine truth believers have heard or how spiritually mature they are, they still need reminders to apply that truth. And wanting them to remember, the true shepherd constantly feeds his flock spiritual food in all its scriptural dress. Realizing that familiarity can breed contempt, he employs all the passages on all the themes so there is freshness instead of familiarity. Familiarity can breed contempt. Oh, isn't that true? Isn't that true? How many among us treat our families, our children, our parents, our spouses less well than we would treat somebody at church or even a perfect stranger? I know I'm guilty of that. You know, sometimes I catch myself. I say something that isn't entirely kind to uh, my wife, and she calls me on it, as she should. And then I think to myself, man, I wouldn't have said that to Laura. Shame on me, seriously. So we know that familiarity can breed contempt, and sometimes we're not the perpetrators of it. We're the objects of it. As a father, I know that to be true. And sometimes it happens within the church, within our church family. We tend to say mean things to one another. We we don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. Uh, We listen to... um, stories without checking uh, you know, for the other person's point of view and that sort of thing. And that's, that's not okay either. So we don't want to have familiarity that breeds contempt. We want to have familiarity that, as uh, the Apostle Peter wrote, breeds diligence in brotherly love and kindness. Okay? But that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's, he's talking about uh, the holding our relationships with God and with our study of our Christian beliefs through the Bible. We get so used to hearing the same things again and again that we get tired of them. And that's why the teacher has to keep things fresh. Not to teach 
in fact, never to teach new ideas that are contrary to truth, that leads to disaster. But rather teach the eternal truths appropriately in fresh ways. On our side as learners, I think that we should be diligent to learn through repetition as well. Learning something to the point of familiarity is one thing. Learning to the point of mastery is an entirely different level. And we only get to mastery through repetition. Practice makes perfect. Okay? And it's not just repetition of what we read about in the Bible or learn about in the catechism. We also need to repeatedly be diligent in brotherly kindness and love. So Peter writes that his readers have been established in the truth. Now being established in the truth is so important because of false teaching. Right? False teaching is not only the subject of chapter 2, which we will learn about in the next sermons, but it is also highly relevant to us today. There are so many false teachers and faulty worldviews that we are exposed to today. And how do we know they are false? By knowing what the truth is. Okay? I read a newspaper, I listen to the radio, and I can pick up, and you should be able to pick up also, what is not true. Okay? okay, so supposedly news organizations want to report the facts, and you can sort of like try to discern the facts by maybe taking multiple sources and that sort of thing. But then the way they frame it, or the way they talk about certain things, and sometimes they just report false things altogether, but nonetheless, we know that these th we can tell that the framing is false because it's the secular news, let's say, and we live with a biblical worldview. So we can tell when things are false. Okay? We know things are false by knowing what the truth is. So being established in the truth is the important thing. And how do we know, for example, as giving another example, when uh, a kid messes up his multiplication tables? Because we know the math facts, okay? How do we know when someone is singing the national anthem and they get the words wrong? They stumble because we already know what it is. So how do we know when we're being exposed to false ideas? Or to be perfectly blunt, false teaching from the Bible? By knowing what the Bible says and what it means. It's all too easy to be led astray by false teaching if we don't know what the Bible says and what it means and how God reveals what he wants to accomplish in the arc of history from creation all the way to ultimate redemption. Okay? All right. And this is why Peter is diligent. Diligent means hardworking. He already knows that false teachers are all around. He would say the same thing that his fellow apostle Paul told other church leaders in Acts 20. Paul said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Okay. He also probably senses that persecution is coming uh, very soon from the Roman Empire. Very likely, he is writing this letter from a prison in Rome itself. So Peter and the other apostles are very diligent to leave behind a godly legacy. Okay? Peter knows that his own death is coming soon. That makes him especially diligent. He uses a metaphor of laying aside my earthly dwelling, which literally means putting away my tent. 
The tent is a temporary dwelling. So he's being figurative about his death, okay? His body. I'm going to go with, to be with the Lord, so I'm going to die. I'm going to put away my tent. Peter knows that he's going to die soon, imminently, because our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. Jesus told Peter that he was going to die as a martyr by crucifixion. Okay? In John 21, Jesus said this, When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Jesus said this, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Now, the Bible doesn't record Peter's death, but the records from the early church indicate that Peter was in fact crucified, and one record states that he was crucified upside down because Peter didn't think that he was worthy of dying the same way that Jesus died, so he insisted on being crucified upside down. One last thing I will note is that Peter writes, after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. This reminds us that Jesus told the disciples in John 14, 26, not long before he was crucified, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. This is a really important spiritual truth. The role of the Holy Spirit in giving us the scriptures, in giving us the Bible, the word of God the God, which we will get into later. Now, to wrap up this first section, let's reflect on what we ourselves will leave behind. Peter labored hard to make sure he left behind solid truth for his fellow followers of Jesus. Jesus labored hard, and he, in the uh, Olivet Discourse, uh, in the Olivet Discourse and also in the Upper Room Discourse, which we learned a little bit about a few weeks ago, uh, he also left the disciples important things that they should remember and the Holy Spirit was going to help them uh, bear in mind. Okay? For us, what are the most important things that we want to tell our loved ones? Because the Bible says that our lives are mere vapors. Tomorrow is not promised to us. Death is an enemy. The enemy sometimes comes unexpectedly. So what will we leave behind? What eternal truths do you need to establish with those whom you love? Whom do you need to share the gospel with before you die? Husbands, do you need to teach and lead your wives better? Parents, do you need to better raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Brothers and sisters, do you need to disciple others so that they can be disciples who make disciples? For me personally, the answer is yes, Yes and yes. Okay? I don't know if I have three minutes left or three days left or three years or three decades. Okay? I do know that I can do better, so I should be diligent in it. Having told his readers that he is going to remind them of these things, Peter then goes on to tell them how he knows these things because he's an eyewitness to Jesus, point two on your outline. For we did not follow, this is verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is setting up both his defense and his attack for chapters 2 and 3 in the letter. 
It's clear from chapter 3 that Peter has been attacked by people who don't believe that Jesus is coming back. It's also clear from chapter 2 that false teachers are actually the ones who are devising their own cleverly devised tales. Peter is defending against mockers while also attacking false teachers. This phrase, cleverly devised tales, is quite interesting. The cleverly devised part is related to the word sophisticated. And basically it means intricately concocted. Intricately concocted. It's detailed. It's tight. It's meant to be believed. The word tales could also be translated myths and refers to stories about divine beings, like Greek myths. We have evidence of these Christian-ish myths dating back a few centuries after Christ. They are called the pseudographical texts, texts like the Acts of Peter, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas. Okay, see, this is why you need to know your Bible really well, so that you'll know that those aren't even part of the Bible. We have the founder of Islam, Muhammad, who claimed to have divine revelation given to him by God through the archangel Gabriel. And more recently, we have groups like the Mormons, whose founder claimed to have been given golden plates with which, uh, the, uh, on which the Book of Mormon was written on them. Okay? These are all cleverly devised tales. And the people of God are distracted by these things. Okay? And I have a very serious concern for us pastorally that we also can be distracted by cleverly devised tales. Right? We're distracted by entertainment. We're distracted by current events. In entertainment, you know, I, I think of cleverly devised tales like you know, the Star Wars saga. I mean, that's a really long mythology, and there's all these movies and all these uh, TV shows and other things like that, and they're entertaining. They're fine. But if you know the story of the Star Wars universe better than you know the arc of, the historical arc of redemption from, you know, creation to the, the birth and death and resurrection of Christ to, to, to the, the coming end times, that, I think, is a warning to us. If you know... Um, the MCU better than, I mean, talk about intricate. It's like you can't even follow anymore, right? If you knew that, uh, that I don't know, that there, isn't a, uh, that there isn't an Iron Man 4 movie, but, that there, but you didn't know that there isn't an Acts of Peter or the, Apocrypha, uh, the, uh, the Apocalypse of Peter, that's a little bit of a problem, right? Because you're more steeped in the cleverly devised tales, the intricate myths of the MCU or Star Wars than you are of the very word of God. And we're also distracted by the hyper-politicization of pretty much just anything. Right? We pastors get so many texts and so many emails every week. Did you see this? Have you read this? You know, what, you know so-and-so did whatever. Blah, 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 did such and such. You know, and everything is politicized, right? COVID, politicized. Uh, elections, well, elections by their very nature are political, but super, super, super duper politicized, right? Racism is politicized, right? I saw somebody post a meme that was like, critical race theory, you know, we should fight against it. Like, sure, like, how about we just fight against racism? So I have this really 
serious concern that we are distracted by the things that are going on in the world a little bit too much. It's okay to, we need to know these things, okay? We need to interact in the world and be, be aware of, of false teaching and also untruths. But we also need to really know this, okay? We really need to know the scriptures and be diving in and studying this thing really hard. Okay, so Peter was diligent, and we should be diligent. You know, as I preach to you, I preach to my own heart in all of these things, because I, like you, am a Star Wars fan. I'm a Marvel fan. I, I also follow politics. I know all these things as well. So I, too, am easily distracted by YouTube and social media and everything else, right? So I'm preaching to my own house. Uh, to my own heart. You know, on the other hand, I want to uh, point out that there are, that it's so encouraging that there are people uh, in our own congregation who are really diligent among these things. I had one brother who wanted to, uh, to, to read something, and so he picked up, you know, a, a very, very thick book and is working his way through it. It's great. We had breakfast. We talked about some of the things. It's fantastic. Right? Uh, we have groups, uh, formal groups like the community groups, but also informal groups like, uh, like just a Bible study, and they buy books on their own, and then they go, well, they talk to us about it as the pastor and say, hey, what about this book? And we say, yeah, that sounds great. Go for it. Uh, here's some things you should look out for. And then they host people at their house, and then they go through it, and they study the Bible together. It's fantastic. It is so encouraging to us. So we should be diligent. And Peter did not follow cleverly devised tales, but focused on the truth of Jesus. Okay? Likewise, we should not allow ourselves to be distracted by cleverly devised tales. Have you noticed that in the scriptures, almost every document, every letter in the New Testament speaks about false teaching? But they very rarely talk about what the actual content of the false teaching is. Sometimes they get into it somewhat, right? Uh, Galatians is, a, is an example. But other times, they mostly just talk about not the false teaching itself, but it, like in Second Peter, the false teachers, the character behind the false teachers. Okay? So we need to be diligent to not follow cleverly devised teach, uh, tales, either about the false teaching, about the faith once for all delivered to the saints, or about distractions from what should be our first priority, and to be diligent in reading and in prayer and in brotherly kindness and in love. A diligence, hard work. So on one hand, you have intricately concocted mythical fiction about Jesus, and on the other hand, you have the truth that comes from eyewitnesses. Okay? So Peter is one of these eyewitnesses. Peter writes that we, the apostles, made known to you who have been established in the truth with all diligence we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be specific, the second coming of Christ. The second coming will indeed be powerful. This is how the book of Revelation describes it in Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, 
white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's powerful. Second, Peter writes, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter bases the truth of Jesus, not on cleverly devised tales, but on living witnesses, himself and others. Eyewitness testimony is key to Christianity. The eyewitnesses were there when it all happened. Think about the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and John were two of Jesus' apostles. They were there and wrote down what happened. Mark was a disciple who traveled with the apostle Peter, whose letter we write, read today. And he wrote down what Peter related to him. Luke was a doctor and a historian who investigated all the facts and interviewed the actual eyewitnesses and wrote it all down in order, as he says. Right? They made copies using the technology and techniques of the time, which was highly reliable. The copies were accurately made. We can prove this by looking at copies from hundreds or even thousands of years apart. And they were circulated during the lifetime of other witnesses so that no funny business could happen with regard to the truth. Okay? Peter's fellow apostle John wrote to his disciples in 1 John, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. Right? Peter's fellow apostle Paul wrote in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Christ died for our sins. He was buried, he was resurrected after three days, and after that he appeared to Peter and then to the other 12 apostles. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 believers at one time, most of whom were sti are still alive at the time of the writing. So you can check. Some of the key evidence for the truth of the Christian faith is reliable eyewitness testimony. Because then Peter mentions one of the most memorable events in verse 17. He says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This event is known as the transfiguration, which is told in Matthew 17, 1 through 8, Mark 9, 2 through 8, and Luke 9, 28 to 36. We read that at the beginning. We read Luke chapter 9 at the beginning of service. Okay? So that is the eyewitness account, account of what happened. Right? And we have uh, Peter talking about it. Right? So along with his resurrection and ascension into heaven, this event is one of the most amazing things that happened to Jesus. Peter, James, and John were able to get a small foretaste of what the glory of Jesus will be at his second coming. That's why Peter chose this episode to relate to the other followers of Jesus, as if to say, I am going to see Jesus soon. Jesus is coming back soon. He is coming in power and glory. 
So hang on tight to the foundation of truth and don't be led astray by false teaching. It's a good message for them and it's a good message for us as well. Now, remember, the laying aside of his uh, dwelling, his tent, his tabernacle is, is imminent. Okay? And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he, Peter, it is reported, said that, <laughs> Lord, we should erect some tents here, some tabernacles. And he didn't know what he was saying, and he, you know, he, was, he was kind of stunned. This is what we call the criterion of embarrassment. If you report something embarrassing about yourself or about you know, someone you know, who you say you're telling the truth, that tends to lend credence to the whole thing because you don't tend to be embarrassed. Uh, you don't tend to lie about a detail that would be embarrassing. Right? You, in, you include the detail that would be embarrassing when it's actually true because then you kind of, and, and we know from, from it being, uh, from being that embarrassing detail that it lends a little bit of weight to the truth of the story that's being told, right? Because we're not, Peter wasn't perfect. And we aren't either. All right, to sum up, Peter says that his witness, that is to say his claim about what he says about Jesus is true is based on the fact that he's a witness. He was actually there when the events about Jesus took place. Okay, this, this leads us to ask ourselves, what is our witness? Okay. We weren't there like the eyewitnesses, but what is our witness? When we tell people about Jesus, and I pray you are telling people about the good news of Jesus, what can we say about how we know Jesus really is God and the only way to God is faith in Jesus who died for our sins? I submit to you that we know, experience, and share both objective and subjective truth, okay? Objective truth is what we read about in the Bible. Jesus is who he said he is. He, is, he did what the eyewitnesses said he did. These are the facts of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also relay subjective truth. Subjective truth is what we experience as change in our lives. How are we different because Jesus saved us? How did God change your hearts? How did getting a new spiritual heart change the outward behavior? The New City Catechism, uh, question 34, asks, since we are redeemed by grace alone through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? And the answer, in part, is yes. So that by our godly behavior, others may be won to Christ. Okay? Sharing the facts of the gospel and inviting and begging people to believe the good news is absolutely critical, for sure. The gospel is the power of God for salvation of all who believes in Romans 1. But it is so much more powerful when you can share your own story and people can see what things have been going on in your own life. On the other hand, if you are a jerk or a drunk or angry all the time, who is going to listen to you about Jesus? Again, the question for reflection is, how is our witness of Jesus to others? How is it going? Think about that this week. Okay. okay, third on our outline. Pay attention and know this. So we have diligent to remind us, eyewitness to Jesus, and pay attention and know this. P 
Peter next moves from his eyewitness of one event, the transfiguration, to categorically affirming all of the reporting and foretelling of events past and events still to come in the scriptures. Verse 19 says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Okay? The prophetic word refers to the prophecies of the Hebrew scriptures, or what we Christians usually call the Old Testament. The Hebrew scriptures consist of 39 books in four general categories, the law or the Torah, history, poetry, and prophecy. Okay? 17 of the books are explicitly prophecy, but prophecy is interwoven in all of the books. Okay, there's some prophecy in the Torah, there's some prophecy in the historical books, there's some prophecy in the books of poetry. And all of the prophecy essentially points to one thing, the Messiah, okay? the Savior that is going to save all of humanity, and God, who is uh, against human sin uh, that ruins the world, is going to make all things renewed, the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord. Okay? Peter writes that we would do well to pay attention to the prophetic word made more sure. Not paying attention is a serious spiritual issue. When Jesus was born and the wise men came to worship him, the priests and the experts in the law were taken by surprise because they weren't paying attention. But the wise men had been studying the scriptures and they knew what the star meant and they knew to come to visit. When Jesus was teaching all over the countryside in Jerusalem, the religious leaders were caught off guard because they didn't know the scriptures as well as they thought they did. And after Jesus was crucified, died, buried, and resurrected, some of his believers didn't know everything they should have either. Okay? So at the end of uh, the gospel according to Luke, we have two disciples traveling along a road, and Jesus comes uh, sort of in disguise, doesn't reveal who he is right away, but this is the, the post-resurrection Jesus. And after they were questioning what was going on and having doubts, he says, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? He challenges them on their knowledge of the prophets. And then, beginning with Moses, that is to say the Torah, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. <laughs> so first, they get yelled at by the risen Savior, and then they get an awesome Bible study about how Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies. Isn't that amazing? It's not even written down for us, but he did it. Okay. So we need to pay attention too. Okay? This is how one commentator puts it. He says, Sometimes Christians neglect the Old Testament or even devalue its authority and continuing vitality in our Christian life. Some Christians know little more of the Old Testament than some of its hero stories, a little of Daniel's end time prophecies, and several favorite psalms. But the whole of the scripture demands our attention and careful study and application to Christian living. The Old Testament indeed prepares us for the New Testament, but in doing so, it does not lose its inspired authority, nor grace-filled power. God has given grace-filled truth in the books of history, law, poetry, and prophecy that comprise the Old Testament. 
Next, Peter uses a metaphor to stir up as a reminder for us why we should pay attention. The scriptures are a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Okay, to be brief as I can possibly be, the lamp is the Bible. The dark place is the era in which we live now. Okay? The day that will dawn is the end times or the second coming what the Bible calls the day of the Lord, and the morning star is Jesus. In other words, we have the Bible during the dark times, then Jesus will come, and that will be the day of the Lord. Okay, there's much to be said that could be said about the coming day of the Lord. It is extensively written about by the Old Testament prophets, and Jesus taught a lot about it too. We already read a little bit about it from Revelation 19, where Jesus will come from the sky on a white horse, followed by the armies of heaven. Okay? Another sneak peek is found right here in 2 Peter. Look at me at uh, chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up be burned up. The day of the Lord is serious business and we need to pay attention and be ready. And then let's see some evidence from the Bible that Jesus is the morning star. Okay? From the Torah, the beginning of the Bible, Numbers 24, 17, looks forward at the Messiah and says, a star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall arrive from Israel. And then Revelation 22 again, uh, the very end of the Bible, Jesus um, is quoted as saying, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Uh, that the star arises in our hearts uh, speaks to the idea that I mentioned earlier, that Jesus' coming will not just be an objective reality, but we will also experience it as a subjective reality in our hearts. Okay? Now, the last point that I want to make today is the last point that Peter makes in chapter 1 before he turns to false prophets and their evil in chapter 2. Okay? Uh, he says this, um, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Okay, this statement is a key underpinning of one of the central doctrines of Christianity, the doctrine of inspiration. Inspiration is a technical term, which means God breathed out the words of the Bible. Today we use uh, inspired or inspirational to refer to something that is creatively motivational, right? What inspired you to write X or to create Y? Oh, I was inspired by so-and-so doing such-and-such, right? Uh, that's very common to hear. But the Christian doctrine of inspiration is that the Bible is literally God-given. God wanted things written, and he supernaturally worked through men, about 40 of them, to produce the 66 books of the Bible. The Bible is his words, just as he wanted them to come out, but the language and style of the human authors also comes through. And he says here, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The verb move is the same verb that is used to describe a sailboat being carried along by the wind. Okay? 
carried along. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God. And just as the part of the ministry of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, was to take on human nature and to die for our sins, part of the ministry of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is to move Ben to write the Bible. Let's look at another verse that is a key underpinning to the doctrine of inspiration. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay? God, uh, the ESV has it as not inspired by God, but as God-breathed, which I think is a really nice translation of that. The secular world, of course, does not believe in God at all and thinks of the world as completely naturalistic. And to them, the Bible is just like any other written document, just like Jesus is just like any other man. But the Bible itself speaks against these theories. In 1 Thessalonians 2, we read, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Now, there is abundant uh, evidence in both the Old Testament and the New Testament for the role of the Holy Spirit in prophecy. So let's quickly spin through some of these, uh, and then we will wrap up. Okay, Numbers 11. Then the Lord came down in the clouds, spoke to Moses, and he took the Spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them. And the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. First Samuel again. The Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. The Spirit of God came upon Saul also, so that he went along prophesying continually. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Okay? Uh, you bore with them for many years, and you admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Nehemiah 9. Uh, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. David said himself, in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, in the New Testament, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. Okay? So to recap, Peter writes that men moved, carried along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. In contrast, he also notes that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now this uh, statement could be a little confusing because it makes it sound like you get the prophecy and then you interpret the prophecy. But I'm going to uh, quote Pastor John MacArthur again to make this point succinctly. He writes that the word interpretation is um, a little unfortunate as a translation because in English it indicates how one understands scripture, whereas the Greek noun is a genitive indicating source. Thus, Peter is not referring to the explanation of Scripture, but its origin. Okay? In other words, how does the prophecy come to human beings? Okay? Peter writes that 
No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. So no true prophecy just comes from human beings. Human beings aren't capable of prophecy by themselves. True prophecy is a gift from God, the Holy Spirit, which he has given to some people throughout history. On our own, we are only capable of false prophecy or maybe a prediction that comes true. But that's not the same thing as, as prophecy. Okay? False prophecy is completely an act of human will. In Jeremiah 14, we read this. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own mind. The next uh, point in, also in Jeremiah is, thus the Lord says, the Lord, uh, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. And in Ezekiel, it says, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel, the false prophets, who prophesy and say to those who prophesy, prophesy from their own inspiration. Okay? Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. Okay? The fact that, prophecy, uh, that, that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will I mean, we, we even see this fairly recently in the, the most recent election. There were dozens of so-called prophets who prophesied that one of the candidates was going to win, the one who didn't win, and afterwards they all had to repent. And, you know, it's crazy because, you know, some of them uh, actually got, you know, when they repented of their false prophecy, they actually received uh, hate mail and death threats, which how is that being diligent in brotherly kindness and love from us so-called Christians. All right. So, I want to close with this idea that prophecy doesn't uh, come from people. It comes from God. And children of God also don't come from our own will. John chapter 1 talks about how people, children of God, are not born of the flesh or by blood, they are born of God. So, if you are feeling the call to come to God, that is the calling of God on your heart. You should come to him. And I invite you and I ask you to come to God through Jesus today. He is powerful and gracious to forgive. So let's close with these thoughts, the three questions that I have on your outline. What are the most important things we want to tell our loved ones? Don't wait. Okay? Tell them now. We are all going to die. We don't know when. We need to make the most of our time that the Lord is giving us. We need to think about what we will leave behind. And how is our witness of Jesus to others? If we truly treasure Jesus as our ultimate good news, then the answer to this question is just a follow-up to the first question. We need to think about and be courageous about our witness to Christ. Peter was courageous. He was martyred for Christ. I would venture to guess that none of us will be martyred for being a Christian, although some of our brothers and sisters in the world will be. All the better reason to share the gospel boldly and courageously with our friends, neighbors, family, and coworkers who otherwise would suffer through hell in eternity. And lastly, how should we pay attention? 
what should we pay attention to? We need to pay attention to the study of Scripture because it is a gift from God that is a lamp in a dark place. He has breathed it out for us. We would do well to learn from it as best we can. Okay, so we are at the close of service. There is a bowl with uh, hermetically sealed communion packets in here. I'm going to call the worship uh, team to come up and lead us in musical worship as we uh, come forward. Uh, please come to the middle aisle. Come get the uh, communion packet. If you do wish also to give an offering, we have envelopes and offering boxes. There's three uh, at, the, at the front of the room here. There's an offering box in the back as well. Uh, so come forward as, as we sing and then um, come get the communion packet. And then on your own, as the music team is singing that first song, uh, I invite you to take of the bread and to drink of the juice. The, the, the bread is what Jesus broke for his disciples at the Last Supper and saying this was his body that was given for us, for all of us. And the juice, the grape juice is the wine is the blood of Jesus given for us in the new covenant. So when we take of the bread and when we drink of the cup, we proclaim the day of the Lord, his coming back in power and glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord God, for this prophetic word made sure. We thank you, God, that the Apostle Peter was courageous and diligent to give it to us. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit, who, uh, by whose power we um, uh, have the gift of the scriptures and who illuminates the word for us, that our eyes may be opened and our hearts may understand and rejoice in the truths that you have given us. Most of all, dear God, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, who was God from all eternity past, and you sent him here to become a man, and he died and gave his life as a ransom for many. He loved us and gave himself up for us that we might live. And by your grace, we are forgiven and will have eternal life in him. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.